0: All right. join me if you would in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, right at the very end. Let's all stand as we read that text. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, several passages, we'll be beginning here, so if you are able uh, to follow along, feel free to do so. If you are not, that's okay. Matthew chapter 27, towards the end we'll pick up reading in verse... 62, and then we're going to read right through the chapter break, so let's just pretend like it's not there. Matthew 27, verse 62. Now the next day, this is after the crucifixion, that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way and make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. And the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye. For I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Let's pray. Father, we could only wish and ask that our eyes may behold some of the magnitude of what we have just read, of what took place on that Vital day in human history. The Son of God walked out of that tomb. Father, I pray you'd give us understanding this morning. Lord, you know facets of that resurrection that can be applied to each life here. I pray, Lord, you would do your mighty and mysterious work in every heart sitting in this room. Some need encouragement. Some need to be corrected. Others may need to be risen from their own spiritual death. Father, I pray you'd help us to behold Christ as the risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, obviously, most of us in this room would hold to what we believe as a church, that the Word of God is inspired by Him. Every word of God is pure, but at the same time, we must maintain, particularly in the historical records, that not necessarily every word in the Bible is true. And what I mean by that is God oftentimes records the words of men who are not speaking according to His mind. You can think of Balaam in the Old Testament. Yes, the record of God was true, what was recorded of him, but yet the words that Balaam said were there as an example of how not to think. We ran into some of that in the passage that we just read in the latter part of Matthew chapter 27. Now, if you were paying attention, there were two repulsive accusations that were spoken of towards the end of Matthew 27, and they were spoken of by the very people who were to be spiritual guides to the masses. These blind words were spoken by the chief priests, those that presided over the sacrificial system in the temple, and by the Pharisees, those who were supposed to be the experts in the finer matters of the Mosaic law, never mind the fact that they themselves denied by their life the two foundational principles that the law contained, to love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The first terrible accusation they leveled was about the disciples, or rather the second one chronologically. They actually came and assumed the disciples would be of such low character that they would try to sneak in and steal a body and to fake a resurrection and then lie about it in order to try to help the so-called truth. Aren't you glad that we read about human nature in the Scriptures and that it was hard enough to convince the disciples when there was a resurrection? These were not men who were about to give their lives for a lie. The truth had a hard enough time in keeping them on board. But the second horrible accusation that was made was one concerning Christ Himself, to whom their hatred was still not pacified, even though they had seen Him die the most cruel death ever devised at that time in human history. What they call Him? They called Him a deceiver. Now it's one thing to wonder about the character of Christ or to... Uh, consider or question some of his claims, but to come out publicly and label him as a liar and a deceiver requires a hardness of heart that takes serious effort to obtain. But there's one thing in all of their errors they did have correct, and here's what it was. If Jesus walked out of that tomb, all of their fighting against it, would be in vain. See, they were still entertaining the notion that they'd been victorious to some degree, having put Him to death. We don't know what was going on in the angelic realm, but uh, perhaps Satan and his minions were rejoicing in a victory. We really do not know. But of course, we who are taught in the Scriptures know that behind the scenes, one of the most terrifying aspects of God's sovereignty was taking place, wasn't it? One of the things that ought to terrify people who sin against God willingly is the very fact that God will hold you accountable for your deeds that you commit, and yet at the last day you will see that you did nothing, nothing, to stop His purposes. These men nailed Jesus to a cross, and they succeeded at fulfilling prophecy. They succeeded at being part of God fulfilling prophecy. His greatest work since, and even surpassing, the creation of the world in the first place. You know, the death of the Lamb of God was like a great submarine earthquake in God's eternal plan. And now three days later, this towering tsunami known as the resurrection is about to come roaring in and crash in upon the shores of humanity. And eventually it's going to sweep across all the continents of the world and all the schemes and devices of sinners against him to stand in its pathway are going to be less than useless and the resurrection took place isn't it pathetic isn't it pathetic to see the different ways in which men raise their fist in defiance against the god of heaven did you read the record here they come and say well now wait a minute You heard His words, so give us some soldiers. We'll we'll put some wax around the door of that stone. We'll we'll set it in place and we'll make sure He doesn't go anywhere. It's no different than what people do today. Jesus, you You just stay in there. I've set up some soldiers in my heart. I've got my sticks and clubs. I'll live life on my terms and You just stay in there. I'll tell you what, I'll cut you out if I need you. And isn't it glorious you see the angel descend and here he's pictured there in the the early verses of 28, he's sitting on that rock like a stool. And you know what's littered all around him? All these brawny soldiers, flat on their lips, passed out in fear. You know why that tomb was open? Oh, we get it backwards. Make no mistake, the Stone wasn't removed from the tomb to let Jesus out. Now Keep in mind, this is the same Christ who would appear in the upper room with the door shut. You see, restructured DNA of a resurrected body doesn't uh, need to go around a rock. It can go right through it. The stone was removed not to let Jesus out. The stone was removed to let the disciples in to see that He was no longer there. That's why it was... Taken away. Now what did the resurrection accomplish? Why did Christ rise from the dead? Well, like most of God's greatest undertakings, there's many, many reasons given to us in the Scriptures. So we're going to take some time this morning. We're going to examine some of them. We're going to look at six of the reasons. Six reasons why Christ walked out of the grave. And all of these are going to come from the New Testament. i flip over a little bit just to Acts chapter 2, right about the middle of the chapter, Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. The scene, of course, is the first sermon that's preached in the New Testament church by the spirit-filled apostle known as Peter. And here he is, really, with a shocking degree of boldness, pointing out the Terrible sinfulness of the religious rulers. Now reason number one that's pointed out here of why Christ came out of the grave, it's a simple one, here's what it is. Just because of who He is. Look what Peter says here in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Him speaking of Christ being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now that's what we were just talking about a moment ago. He laid the crimes at their feet, but he said, listen, Christ went to the cross not because of what you did, but because it was in God's eternal purpose. But just because God ordained something, don't think that let sinful men off the hook for a moment. The soul that sinneth shall still die. But look what he says in the next verse. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, Why? Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So the reason Peter gives at the outset for Christ rising from the dead is because of the impossibility, the impotency, the powerlessness of death itself. You know, death has no power on its own. You know what death is doing? Death is carrying out marching orders as a judgment upon a wicked and fallen race. Death is a result of a willful turning away from the author of life, and only death can result. Most of us remember the question in Luke 24 that the angel asked to the women that came to the tomb. One of my favorite questions in the New Testament. Remember what it was? Why seek ye the living among the dead? Well, now there's a question, isn't it? Multitudes in this country are doing that just this morning. They're seeking the living among the dead. They're looking for life, digging through the rubbish of all their sinful ideas and and programs and different religious schemes. They're looking for life where life does not exist. But you know, when the angel asked that question, it was more than a forensic examination. Why are you looking for one that's breathing among those that are not? Here's what he's asking. Why do you persist at keeping it in your head that the Prince of Life is going to remain under the bondage of death a moment longer than is absolutely necessary. Nothing could be more unnatural and shocking than that the living one would sink beneath the waves of death. Now what was it that brought him there? How did the one called the Prince of Life come to find himself on the wrong side of the terrifying waves of what we call death. Did death somehow increase in power? We look from our mortal perspective and death is a terrifying foe. None of us will cheat it or escape it except by rapture. Did death somehow grow in force? Is death now sovereign? Is death now omnipotent? Does death now exert a force over the one that First pronounce it as a judgment. Well, the Scripture only gives one answer to that question. It was willingly the just for the unjust that Christ placed Himself underneath death's curse and became that sacrifice for us. It was His infinite heart of love that brought the Prince of Life in contact With death. But the moment that that appointed penalty was paid. The moment that those days in the tomb were fulfilled. There was no more occasion for the deathless one. To inhabit the caverns of decay. Death's bars were broken. The reason being passed. Christ simply walked out of the tomb. Because... That's who He is. Number two, we'll stay in the same passage. Number two, another reason why Christ rose from the dead was to fulfill the covenant to David. Now I'll admit, we're not going to go near and near in as much depth on this particular point as I would like to. This is a, this is a massive topic, those of you that have studied it. But generally, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we make application of New Testament church doctrine and principles, and, and rightly so. But there's at least one reason Christ walked out of that grave that is distinctly Old Testament and Jewish in character. Now you remember, if you're familiar with God's covenant to Abraham, beginning back in Genesis 13, God promised Abraham descendants And He promised him a land, a geographical location on terra firma that we refer to as the land of Palestine. But when it came to the man King David, God extended that covenant and He promised King David an everlasting throne. An everlasting king from his lineage that would sit on that throne. And He promised an everlasting kingdom that that king sitting on that throne would Rule over. Now, we're not going to turn to these passages. You can do it on your own sometimes. 2 Samuel 7. You can look at Psalm 89. And the reason I reference those, those passages, among others, make it abundantly plain. Listen, David understood that covenant as an extension of his physical, literal, earthly throne. If you're familiar with so called covenant theology, one of the major, major errors, and there are a lot. They totally butcher the Davidic covenant. Butcher it. They want to make it say something it it doesn't say. Listen, if that covenant didn't speak of an earthly kingship, it wouldn't matter what lineage Christ came from, you see. But you can look those passages up to check the veracity of what I'm saying. And by the way, in covenant theology writers, this is another reason why you will not see a lot of emphasis on the resurrection. It doesn't make theological sense in their system to emphasize it like it does in a balanced scriptural perspective, but that's another topic. But you see, it was this very kingdom, the extension of David's literal earthly throne, that was exactly what Christ promised when He came in the early chapters of the book of Matthew. The kingdom He promised wasn't just some Kingdom pulled out of nowhere. It was the extension of what had been promised to David that he was saying, I am here to literally fulfill that promise that was made so long ago back there. And that, by the way, is why Matthew starts with the genealogy tying him back to David. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. But of course, their response was to take their king and have him executed. Well, now we have a theological problem, don't we? How is it tell me that a slain king can inhabit any throne, let alone an everlasting one? (coughs) But yet, had he not died somehow, had he been received as the king, we flip the question over and say, well, how then would man's sin have been atoned for? Well, the answer was, in God's perfect providence, the king would be slain, and the king would be risen again to occupy that earthly throne. And this is the theme Peter picks up in Acts chapter two. Verse 25, for David speaketh concerning him of Christ. He's talking about, "I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved." David says his heart rejoices. Then in verse 27, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. That's the grave, Hades. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Verse 29, Peter says, Let me talk to you about the patriarch David. Let me share something with you, he's saying. Here's what it is. Uh, He says, David is dead and buried. We know where his sepulcher is. So what was David talking about that he wouldn't see corruption? He says, verse 30, David was a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. Notice the terminology. That of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. You see the emphasis? According to the flesh, his loins, his throne. And so he's saying, David, by faith, here's what he saw. Christ was going to come out of that tomb so that God could keep that covenant to David and could occupy that throne of eternity just like He said. In verse 36, He says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly God hath made the same Jesus whom He crucified, both Lord and Christ. Have you ever noticed the import of what He was pounding home in their mind? He was saying, listen, You've crucified the Messiah, the Savior from sin. You have crucified God in the flesh. And you have crucified the King who was going to take David's throne forever. And all three of those in the person of Christ, you have executed. And the sword thrust through their soul. And multitudes cried out and said, What now? Because they understood. Part of the reason why he walked out of that grave was to keep that covenant with David, which, by the way, he's still going to keep. It's on pause for now, but it's, it's coming. Alright, number three. We can flip over to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans 4, 25. Now, we obviously were through this some months ago in our exposition of Romans... But reason number three we're going to look at is Christ was raised from the dead because of our justification. Now you remember, I hope, some of you what the definition of justified is. Romans is full of such tremendous theological terms. And justified is a legal term. To be justified is to be be declared not guilty in God's high court. Justification has to do with our guilt, our crimes being atoned for, and God saying where sin existed, I see it no more. Here in Romans 4.25, an interesting statement is made that Christ was delivered for our offenses and He was raised again for our justification. Now according to this text, and it is a difficult text, I'll explain that in a minute, Christ's resurrection had something to do with our justification. Now here's why that's difficult. Doctrinally, what specific work of Christ was it that took care of justification? You would answer correctly, it was His death that took care of that. Now you remember the Old Testament sacrifices and what was required as as they were prepared for the coming Messiah. They would take that spotless animal, and it had to have its blood spilled, and it had to be put to death, but nowhere in the requirements do you see it required that that animal raise again. That wasn't part of the typology, at least there. Every one of those animals died and rose again no more. In New Testament soteriology, the doctrine of salvation accords with that perfectly. Romans uh, chapter 3, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. It was because He was slaughtered in my place that I can be declared not guilty. Romans 5 says the same thing. Much more now, being justified By His blood. Alright, well what's the point then? Here's what resurrection has to do with justification. And this is what I think the meaning of that particular text is. Christ's resurrection has nothing to do with the payment of justification. But here's what it has to do with. It's the proof of justification. Justification think about this for a minute, is somehow in God's providence, Christ went the way of those Old Testament sacrifices. Let's see, we see Jesus slaughtered brutally for the sins of the world, and God says, there's the Lamb of God, but He went in that tomb, and He never came back. What would you wonder? At what point did redemption run out? Which monstrous sinner in history overwhelmed the grace of God? Was it done chronologically? Did He begin to take man's sin debt, beginning at the first sinners that ever lived? And finally in these last days, somewhere along the line, He ran out of mercy. So how can my sins be atoned for if Christ didn't come out? You know, if you're sitting here, and you are a real Christian, a real one. One experience that has probably happened to you. There came a day where you realized the enormity of your crimes against a good and loving God who gave you life not because of what sin did to you. You are not the object. So many today want to make sin a selfish thing. Oh, I've sinned, and oh, look what it's done to me. Forget about you. Look what it's done to God. Look how you've offended holiness and deity. Look how you've despised preaching. Look how you've despised the Word of God. Look how you've trespassed against His mercy. Look how you've despised His long suffering and goodness and mercy. And some of you here have heard the gospel dozens and dozens of times. And let maybe you sit here with eyeballs staring at me and you're as dead as a doornail in the spiritual realm. How dare you? You see, you're not the issue. Have you ever realized how you've sinned against God? What a monstrosity you are in the universe, apart from divine grace. I hope everybody here knows experientially what I'm talking about. And there'll be seasons as a Christian where you're so shocked at your hard-heartedness, you're so sick of the filth that dwells within you, but here's the thing about the resurrection is bearing on that. We can't ever get to the point where we say, my sins are too great. We look at the tomb and say, it's empty. And because it's empty, we can look at the wrath of God and say, it's finished. Amen. And Christ came out of the tomb to prove there's not a single sin He couldn't atone for. Christ rose from the dead to show atonement has been purchased, paid in full. Grace was greater than all our sin. Oh, the blackness of human iniquity, who could ever tell? The grace of God is, is deeper still. Number four, we can turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Christ came out of the grave to give life to them that believe. Here's a trivia question for you. Whether it's in the context of comparative religions or, or life philosophy or whatever else, if you could describe or define Christianity in one word, what would it be? Morality, goodness, love, forgiveness, hopefully not religion. Well, I would submit to you, if we were forced to one word, the most accurate word we could come up with would be life. Life. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You see, the essence of Christianity is life in its fullest definition. Just like the Apostle John wrote later on. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. It's not a question of where you sit on Sunday. How religious you are, what list you keep. How you were raised and what you heard and what you know. The central question is, do you or do you not have life? We see very on in the Word of God that there's two classes of beings. There's a life giver and there's life receivers. And if we're going to take Jesus' statement at face value, think about it, Jesus walks into this world surrounded by the masses. Hundreds of thousands of people surrounding him, passing through the millions at times like the Passover, and he says, I have come that they might have life. Now, if you're going to take his words at face value, there's a couple things you have to come up with. That what we consider life, meaning I have a pulse, a heartbeat, and brain working, is not the life he's talking about. Men must be dead according to that definition of spiritual life. And secondly, there's only one person who can do anything about it. Christianity is far more than a change in locations after death. So many want to make it about that. Where are you going when you die? Want to know a greater question? Do you possess life right now? Christianity is God giving His own life in exchange for the bubonic plague in our own heart known as sin. It's to have your eyes opened. It's to wake up and have the dungeon flame with light. It's to cast off the former works of darkness and to understand this physical body may work, but I am in rebellion against the living God. And I am dead in trespasses and sins. And the reason Jesus says you must be born again, He's saying you need a quality, a supernatural life that only God can give. And you don't have that life. You don't have the Son. You have nothing. Nothing at all. You know, many things happen at once when a person believes in Christ. We already talked about justification. That's the legal part of it. But how about the new birth? I mean, on what basis is a fallen dead sinner recreated as a living Christian? You remember the words of Colossians 3, don't you? Remember how he describes those that are in Christ? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Somebody's risen with Christ. He says, listen, you're raised with Christ. For that very reason, you turn away from the works of blackness. You prove you belong to Jesus. And if you don't, something is massively wrong with your profession. That's what that passage is saying. Something's very, very seriously wrong when somebody says, I belong to Jesus, my life's mine. Oh, no, it is not yours. Make no mistake, friend, you're a slave to something. You're a slave to sin, or you've been bought to Christ. Now, which is it? Which is it? But see, the new birth, the power flows through the resurrection of Christ. Tell me something. When we talk of Christ as a substitute, what do you think of? Well, He took upon Himself my sin, died in my place. Well, that's true. But do you know that's only part of what the Bible teaches on substitution? Do you realize Christ was your substitute in death? He was your substitute in crucifixion. He was your substitute in burial. He was your substitute in resurrection. And if you are in Christ, all of those things belong to you as fully as they belong to Him. Because you are in Him. That's what's so glorious about the picture of baptism. Here's one that stands and said, I've been made new. I believed in Christ. What are they saying? The old me died that day when I came to the cross. The old passions and the old thought processes that used to dominate this wicked heart of mine, they've been laid in the grave. And I've been raised to walk in newness of life because I've been risen with Him. Now, for each of us, that change came the moment we trusted Christ. But from God's side of the ledger, it's what it says in Ephesians 2. Verse 1 You hath he quickened, that means made alive. Verses 5, even when we are dead in sins, what has He done? Hath quickened us together with Christ. Verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. See, belong to Jesus, a new birth flowed through the resurrection power of Christ. And from God's side of the ledger, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, So did you. So did you. Number five. Jesus came out of the tomb. We can stay in the same passage to impart power to those that believe. Now perhaps you notice that's very similar to the last reason. But you see, life, life is a state of being. Power is the ability to do. Life is what we possess eternally when we come to Christ. Power is what is needed daily here on earth to wage a supernatural battle against the powerful enemies and to live a quality of life that's impossible without divine aid. Many of you were taught the Great Commission when you were very young. You can rattle it off, Matthew 28, 18-20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What's the therefore talking about? You see, we can't leave that part out. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Why? Because of the power of enabling that is present. That's precisely why in John 15 we see the metaphor used I am the vine, Christ says, and near the branches. What does that matter? Well, just because he has all power and you and I have none. That's exactly what he means. And he says, without me ye can do nothing. This was the very dichotomy that about drove the Apostle Paul out of his mind in Romans 7. Because you remember what his problem was there? To will is present with me, but how? The power to perform that which is good I find not. He found that he's called to live a quality of life that is far beyond his human ability. This power of Christ is needed in evangelism. It's needed in victory over our sin nature. We find in Romans 6, many other areas in the New Testament. But what's interesting here in Ephesians 1, this is right in the middle of Paul's prayer. If you pick up verse 19, he's praying for these Christians of the church in Ephesus. And one of the things he's telling them, he prays for them, that they would know what is the exceeding greatness of His power... To us word who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Do you get what he's asking? He's asking, he's praying that they would know experientially the power of Christ in their daily life. You want to know how to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? When was the last time you asked God to show your brother or sister Experientially, what his power is like to trample sin underfoot, to preach the gospel, to do and obey the will of God. You see, many times our problem isn't one of wanting to do right, it's of not grabbing hold of the proper mechanism to have the power to do what's right. Right? We've all been there. Notice here in verse 20, where was the great showcase of this power? Next verse. This power which He, God the Father, wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, Christ came out of the grave. One of the reasons He rose from the dead is to demonstrate the power that He possesses And is willing to impart to all who abide in Him. Tell me, how much power did Christ have over death? All. How much power did Christ have over sin? All. And we could just keep coming on and on with those examples. But you see, He walked out of the grave to prove this same power that conquered death is able to subdue even the likes of your perverse, corrupt, wicked nature and mine. Amen. We uh, often quote Philippians 4.13. That's a popular one these days. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. You know, that's not a self-help motto. Many people I fear quote that, meaning I name the name of Jesus, therefore I can do what I want. You know what that verse is really saying? It's essentially expressing confidence that I, or you if you belong to Christ, I am crucified with Him, I died with Him that day, I came out of the grave with Him, and that same resurrection power is available to me to do the will of God, and I'm going to do it. That has everything to do with God's enabling and not my resolve. Number six, and we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, 20-23 to 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Now you probably notice twice in that same passage Christ is referred to as the first fruits, Remember the seven Jewish feasts when we went through those some time ago? And, and they are, of course, all uh, typical. They, they, they point to Christ. Many of them have already been fulfilled. Well, the Feast of Firstfruits uh, occurred right in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It commemorated the beginning of the grain harvest. It was just a few days after Passover. And what happened was a sheaf of barley, the first grain that was collected was taken to the temple, it was waved before the Lord to show by faith that another harvest, a massive one, was going to be following on its heels. And of course it's directly stated, we don't have to wonder, in this passage that Christ is the fulfillment and that that was fulfilled in His resurrection. You see, He was taken from the field of the world. He was presented to His Father in heaven and He stands there as the representative of a great future harvest that is still coming. Do you realize that in all the heavenly realms there's only one being right now that's there with a glorified physical body and His name is Jesus Christ. Now I'll admit I can't tell you what a spirit looks like. There are those that have died, obviously, multitudes and gone on to be with the Lord. But as regards to an actual true resurrection, you see, we use that word loosely. We, we tend to use the word resurrection uh, maybe in ways we shouldn't. Christ is the only one that has ever been truly resurrected in the sense, in the fullest sense, of what that word means. Others that were raised from the dead, they were merely restored to what they were before. They still had to go on and die. They were still in a body of flesh. But when Christ rose from the dead, it was more than just the undoing of what death has brought. His body was created in utter perfection. His body was created in such a way that it was no longer subject to the ravages of mortality. What must it be like to have... Flesh and bones and no blood. Well, that one will make you think, won't it? Or a restructured DNA that can go through walls. To have all senses working 100%. You know, you only see 5%, less than 5% of the light available right now. Not so in a resurrected body. A body that has no fatigue no ability or need to feel pain, and so on. If you are a Christian this morning, you have a perfect representation in the heavens, the first fruits of the resurrection that is most assuredly coming. In fact, it's so surely coming that the Christian is said to be seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Now J. Vernon McGee used to say every Christian is a long fellow. (laughs) He's seated with Christ in the heavens and yet His feet are walking on this earth. Interesting way to look at it. You know at this very moment angels are looking at the exalted Christ knowing that someday in the not so distant future the heavens are going to be filled with untold millions that have been fully changed into the image of the first fruits. But it hasn't happened yet. Romans 8, part of that whole chain of God's foreknowledge and predestination is that the believers would be conformed to the image of Christ. Now part of that is ongoing sanctification, but the final product is when in a moment it transformed to His image. Paul wrote about in Philippians 3, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, What's He going to do? He's going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. So tell me something. What does the resurrection mean to you? Is this just another historical event? Another miracle to talk about? A day to dress a little more fancy. A day to eat lamb and spend time with family. Those things are good and well in their place. But Christ's resurrection is far more than that. Christ's resurrection is a depiction of the tremendous miracle He's willing to work in any life that is here. Christ's resurrection is a picture of the power over sin He's willing to give to any true Christian that is here. Christ's resurrection is another sure proof that someday the Son of David is going to sit in Jerusalem on a throne and His kingdom will have no end. Christ's resurrection is the down payment Of what he's going to do for every single Christian living in this church age. Are you a possessor of life though? Have you gone through a change that can only be described as a new birth? Where the sin that you once loved you now hate. Where the righteousness you once hated you now love where the Word of God is precious to you in an increasing manner, where it's evident that the God of all eternity has taken up residence in you, not perfection, mind you. But listen, you come to Christ, you now possess two natures, and you can be sure if Christ is in you. He's done His part. He's done His part. I plead with you, there are so many counterfeits to that today. I fear heaven's records are going to show there are so many thousands sitting in churches Easter morning all across this country who are going to perish in the flames of hell because they don't have life. May it not be true for anyone here. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have a risen Savior, fully man to know our infirmities and our struggles and our nature, but yet fully God, able to save to the uttermost. And Father, I pray that each precious soul here would forget about pretense and facade and delay and procrastination and would deal with you in open and brutal honesty while they still have breath. Pray, Father, if one is here sitting dead in sins, that your word would pursue them right out the door. Lord, that your infinite heart of love would give them no rest while they persist in stiffening their neck against your grace and mercy. Father, I pray for those that are in Christ. Lord, you know how pathetically weak we are. You know how wicked our nature is. Teach us, Lord, how to behold the risen Christ. To find in Him as our substitute. There is great power over sin. There is power to preach the gospel. There is power to obey Thy will. And that we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. And all of His glory today. In Jesus' name, Amen.